catching us in the middle of a series called Rise. We've been walking through the book uh, of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. So if you've got a copy of God's Word with you, I want to invite you to go ahead and turn that, take that out and turn to the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. Uh, and when you get there, uh, we're going to start in chapter 2 where we left off last week. I'll, I'll actually start in chapter 1, but just read one verse and it'll set the stage for us in just a second. But let me give you a quick review uh, if you haven't been able to be here. We've been talking about this guy, Nehemiah, who was cupbearer to King Artaxerxes of the Persian Empire. And you like, why in the world does that matter? Because this guy, being a Jew, was instrumental for what God was doing in a particular season, a particular time. He had what we call the first week, this it moment, where uh, the situation of the brokenness uh, of the world came down to this really specific thing, the brokenness of a specific structure, which was the wall around Jerusalem. And God began breaking his heart for the situation and the structure to say, hey, I want you to be the one that leads my people back to the rightful place of where they are so that they can uh, lead my people to become a blessing as I promised them back all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. And the placement of Nehemiah is really important uh, in the historical record because this is the last historical record before we get to the New Testament. Uh, This is about 400 years or so before Jesus comes and it's the last story we get really uh, of God working through his people in, in in scripture until Jesus arrives. And so we asked the question on the outset, why are we being shared this story? Why is this inspired? Why does God want us to know this? Because we want God, I believe, wants us to know what it's like for him to keep his promise, not just to make it, to continue to keep it and to work through his people as a precursor to lead us up to Jesus Christ. So we learned about brokenness the first week. The second week, we talked about how brokenness doesn't just need to stay brokenness. It has to move to a step of boldness. And so we watched as Nehemiah began to pray really bold things. Uh, This brokenness led him to pray that uh, he would basically take the responsibility for the sin of his people that had gotten them in the predicament, uh, that God would actually give him success uh, in the sense of going before this king and asking his permission and endorsement uh, and funding to actually rebuild this wall that was not his responsibility and was actually quite a threat to his his power to do. Uh, And so he started to pray this, but then there came that moment, that pivotal moment in his life that always happens when uh, these prayers really come to fruition and God asked him to take a bold step and he actually had to say something and he had to say something and speak truth to power and when he did that he actually got God's hand was on him, and God moved in the life of King Artaxerxes, and he gave him everything that he requested, built him a house, gave him the resources, gave him protection, all those kinds, and sent him on his way. But it all started with that it moment of brokenness. And when we revisit that today, we're going to take another step because the reality is, is that God doesn't just want us to have a sense of brokenness over the situation in the world that we're all in. He doesn't just want us to say, hey, a specific structure we're broken about. He actually doesn't just want us to pray bold prayers. And he doesn't just want us to have bold visions. He actually knows that for us to actually see change, that at some time it's going to take both these things that are in your arms. It's going to take your hands. It's going to take putting the work done. Because the problem was that the gates had been burned and the walls had been torn down and no amount of praying were going to materialize a wall. No amount of brokenness was going to materialize a wall, that it was going to actually take some hands picking up some beams and setting them in place. It was actually going to take some hands picking up some bolts and putting them on the hinges. It was actually going to take some hands that were going to take the bars and lock the gate so that it would be a fortified structure once again. 
the brokenness had to evolve. It had to be shaped. It had to grow. And we're at the point now where everything that God has been doing begins to take shape in Nehemiah's walk, and we begin to lean in a little bit to understand some practical steps for sure of what it means to take a vision from brokenness and boldness to actually put a plan in place and actually implement a plan. But more importantly, what we're going to see is the way that God is still building his people today for the church of Jesus Christ. So I want you to look with me. We're going to visit chapter 1, verse 3 real quick, just at the stage, and it's going to give us the context for everything that's going to happen in chapter 2 and verse 11 and following. But this is what Nehemiah 1, 3, this was that it moment once again for Nehemiah. They said to me, these visitors from Judah, they said, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. This was the it moment. It was the situation when the cosmic brokenness of the situation of all the world came very real to him. And the information was, this is something that you can have a say over. This is something you can actually have a hand in in remedying the brokenness and rebuilding the wall. So with that in the context, he's got to go and take that initiative to ask for the request and say, hey, you know, I, I need the material. I, I got to have the stuff. And so he gets a letter from uh, King Artaxerxes. He takes it to, go, uh, to get the, for- the guy that's over the forest. He gets all the supplies, the resources. He goes on his way. Uh, he gets the protection on the way. And as that happens, then he arrives in Jerusalem, as is where we're going to pick up the story in verse 11 of chapter 2. This is how he starts. It says, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others, and I'd not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one that I was riding on. Now, I'm going to stop real quick and kind of catch up in the story because, as I said, he went before the king, got the permission to do it. But uh, we're, we're looking a few months down the line now. Within the span of just a few verses, uh, a lot of time has passed. Uh, as a matter of fact, the journey itself from the capital where he was to Jerusalem was about 900 miles. And we don't know quite how long that would take to travel. Uh, if you go back to the book of Ezra, uh, they... Uh, they went back the same route, basically, that Nehemiah did, and it took them four months to get from one location to another. Imagine how long it'd take for you to travel 900 miles, just you, much less anything else. But uh, I think his, his journey was probably a little longer, uh, mainly because he had to actually get the material, right? Have you ever had, tried to take a trip to Lowe's? We call it slow lows around here, right? Because it just takes forever. You go in there and it's just like this big vacuum. It sucks you in. Uh, can you imagine trying to get all the materials ready to do the job that you were going to do? Uh, he had to go to the guy that was over the forest. They had to get the material. They had to load the material. They had to go through all the channels for all that stuff. They had to get it on their way, get on a caravan, and take off. And then not just that, but imagine how arduous the journey would have been and dangerous the journey would have been. The reason you requested protection, because even if you just went alone, it was a big deal. Uh, you, could be a, uh, you could be accosted. You could be, they could come and take everything you had. Imagine if you had a full entourage with all this material to travel 900 miles. Not only was it a hard journey, it was a very dangerous one, because if people knew you had all those resources, they would have tried to attack you and take the resources. You're kind of out in the middle of nowhere. You're very exposed. And so it was a very dangerous journey. It was a very long journey. And after all those things, can you imagine what it would have been like to Ben Nehemiah. 
I mean, it's one thing to be in the palace and to feel the burden, right? We've all felt the burden. Uh, you, you might get to a point where uh, you actually are bold enough to speak to power and say, hey, could, would, you, would you really endorse me and would you resource me to be able to go do this thing? That's a big, powerful moment. But usually what happens is there's a period where dreams die. Dreams usually die in this phase, uh, not in the brokenness phase, Usually not even in the initial surge of boldness when you really kind of get your grips around this idea. But usually it's the days, weeks, and months, and sometimes years following the initial surge of attention where God's people and every human being, honestly, when you get an idea, you go through this period where you actually have to put flesh on it. You actually have to implement a plan. And if you can imagine what it would have been like for Nehemiah in the months leading up to arriving at this day in verse 11, chapter 2. And if you can kind of see him at the end of his journey, as he's riding in with this huge caravan, he's the cupbearer to the king, but now he's got this full entourage. He's going into a place he's never been before. And as it continues to grow with every step on the horizon, with each step forward, the tension in his heart and his mind grows. That's when the questions start. Well, it's not just an idea anymore. It's not just a prayer anymore. I'm about to have to do this thing. I've got these people following me, and I've got people in front of me I don't yet know, and I don't quite know what to lead them, and I actually haven't even seen the wall. I've had sketches. I've probably sketched some things. I've had some ideas about what it's going to take. But until you actually get there, you don't really know. And can you imagine what it would have felt like riding into Jerusalem? And the question is asked, what would you do? What would you do the first thing when you get in Jerusalem? If you've had, probably at this point, we've got four months prior to asking the king. We've got at least four months after. So let's say eight to 12 months following the initial spot and of the it moment in Nehemiah chapter one. What do you do nine months to one year later when you see Jerusalem and you finally put your feet in the spot? Well, what Nehemiah did is he didn't do anything. For three days, he didn't do a thing. It says, I went into Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, three days, what happened in his mind? What was he doing for three days? Just getting organized, getting things shuffled around. He's probably answering questions. What do we do? Where does this go? Where do we store this? Where do we put this? He's now the man in charge, and he now has to lead, and we have to take the next step. He knows he's got to take the next step. He can't run back home. He can't go back and, and say, well, was this a fool's errand? Was this a fool's mission? This should never have taken place. Maybe, maybe I should never have said anything. Maybe I didn't really hear from God, uh, those kind of things. But instead, what does he do? It says at night, he gets up and he sets out and he didn't tell anybody where he was going. The question is, what's he, where's he going? Well, get a crisp review in verse 2, I mean, in verse 13 and following. It says, By night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. You, I love the way that he continues to be repetitive and redundant about the problem. That's going to come back up in just a second. But if you get this idea of this guy, this individual just walking the wall. Now, he gets out at night. Uh, he tries not to draw attention to himself because this is the way it usually happens in my life. I, I don't know about you, but a lot of times the, the time I do the most examining is when it's quiet. 
Right? It's when there's not a lot of things going on. I've got a lot of people that I work with. Uh, I've got staff. I've got people in my life. Uh, I've got errands. I'm running around doing things. The kids are involved. I've got four kids. All right? uh, All those kind of things. I've got a lot going on in my mind. So sometimes the, the spot that it gets the quietest is when I'm alone at night and my mind's racing. And I might be the only one here, but that's usually when I'm examining things. And I'm thinking about the details of things, and I'm thinking, well, we've got to do this, and this has to move here, and I need to have this conversation. Oh, I forgot to email them back. I've got to make this phone call. And so I'm doing these things in my mind in the middle of the night, and, and this is the point that I believe that is the first stopping off point for God's people to really have a move of God. It doesn't happen when you get on the ground and you begin to publicly make demands and guide people. It happens first in the private moments when you're alone and you're examining the wall. What's the first step in a vision? Well, obviously, you got to have brokenness. Obviously, you got to pray boldly. you got to make bold initiatives. But at some point, you got to get out, and you have to walk the wall. I think this is a place where a lot of dreams die, uh, because this is not the fun part. I mean, in a weird way, brokenness is kind of fun, spiritually. It's like something's awakened in you, and it feels like you're closer to God in a state of brokenness. It's like everything you're aware of, and people can walk out of a church service, per se, or a small group, or maybe a time alone from the board, where God revealed himself to you in a new way, where it came clear, the light bulb went off for the first time. That's a fun time, even if it's a hard time. As a matter of fact, praying bold things with God, that, that's kind of fun because you're feeling close to God, right? Uh, even if you're in that moment when you feel the surge of the Holy Spirit come through you and you actually have the power to say what you need to say at the moment you need to say it, that's a fun moment. But let me say this, the hard moment is when you're alone in the middle of the night and you're the one that has to walk the wall. Because in the moments of brokenness and even the boldness, none of those can supplant the power of getting out and actually walking the perimeter of the thing that God's calling you to do. It's noticing the details. What's it going to take? What's it really going to take to do what God has told you to do? Well, he found a lot as he walked the perimeter, as he examined the walls. He said he moved on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was not enough room for the mount to get through. So I went up to the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. What What he found was something that he couldn't fully anticipate. Uh, have you ever been in a spot where uh, you, you had a project to do, but you didn't know where to start? Uh, that happens maybe, maybe it was you got a company coming to the house, and the house is a mess, and maybe you got teenagers, and so you're walking in the room, you're like, I don't even know where to start with this stuff. Uh, some of you college students, it's your grade point average, right? I don't even know where to start to fix this, this thing. For some of you, it's a project at work. The boss comes in and he says, hey, uh, we've got, this, we got all these things we've got to do and we've got to have it done in three months. And you're like, I don't even know where to start for something like that. Well, can you imagine going into a place like this and the first obstacle, obviously, is the physical obstacle of the wall. And as you walk the perimeter, what you find is you find that probably there was no amount uh, of imagination on the front end that could have really prepared you for what you actually saw. It's what we all experience coming out of a period of addiction or uh, a period of hopelessness or depression. It's like, I don't know how to climb out of this thing. When he gets to some of the gates, he can't even get through. There's so much rubble. He had come prepared to build a wall, but perhaps he didn't anticipate how much stuff you had to clear just to get to where you could build. See, there's always physical obstacles for every vision that God places on his people. 
Every time God moves, He doesn't just move the mountains. We pray that. We ask God to do that. But most of the time, the way that God moves mountains is through the efforts of His people as He empowers us through the Holy Spirit to do it. And so as He walks the perimeter of the wall, what does He come in front of? He comes with the reality of how messy this situation actually is. You know, I don't care what the problem is that God's burdened you for. I mean, if it's the orphan crisis, this one that's dear to my heart, dear to a lot of people here, had unplugged grand training this, this Saturday, you know, even in our adoption journey, you know, there's this thing in church where it becomes kind of the popular thing to talk about with something like that. Like, hey, let's, let's attack the orphan care crisis and let's, let's get everybody to adopt. And it's easy to say, and it's easy to go back uh, and just kind of live life and go, oh, man, that was a really cool Orphan Sunday, or that was a really cool message or cool testimony. But what it doesn't account for is the messiness of adoption, of how hard it really is, of how difficult the questions really are, how sometimes you don't know what to do or how it's going to turn out, and you walk the wall and you see the messiness. If you've got a vision for, for families, for marriages, and you say, I wanna, I, I've got a vision, I've got a bold vision that God could restore and redeem every marriage in our church, every marriage in our community, and I believe that to be so. I believe that's God's will. We're in agreement on that. But then you step into some troubled marriages, and there's a lot of rubble on the ground. And you're not just building, you're actually just trying to clean some things out so you can build. You deal with kids, you deal with teenagers, you deal with college students. If you've got any vision of any level, I promise you there's going to be some rubble on the ground. And what happened with Nehemiah that day or that night is he went out by himself alone and he simply walked the wall. If God's put a burden on your heart for anything that's in line with his will, it's not just going to be having a brokenness for it. And it's not just going to be praying bold prayers. You're going to have to get up, sometimes alone. This is not the fun part of the journey. And you're going to have to ask the questions that everybody else that you're going to pitch the vision to is going to have to ask. And you're going to have to find the answers before you ever ask the question. That's what God does through leaders. And so Nehemiah walks the perimeter of the wall. As he's walking the wall, he's finding there's a lot of rubble there, but he also finds a couple other things out and this is what we see very next. The officials did not know where I'd gone or what I was doing because I, as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. First of all, Nehemiah didn't tell anybody where he was going because sometimes, uh, if you are like me, sometimes when I get really excited about a vision, I want to tell everybody, oh man, we can do this and we're going to do this and we're going to plant this many churches and we're going to disciple this many people and we're going to do this, 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 this. But what Nehemiah did was he did something that I'm trying to learn in my own life is to be slow to speak and quick to listen. Not just to other people, but to the Lord. Lord, what are you saying? How do you want this to happen? Let me get behind the scenes. Let me plan out some things. Let me do some business. Let me walk the wall. Let's see what it's going to count. What it, what, let's count the cost. Let's see what it's going to take. Let's, let's make preparations. Let's make plans to do this. It's a very spiritual thing to make plans and to prepare. And in that moment, he didn't tell everybody what he was doing. And he hadn't said a word to the Jews, either the priests, the nobles, the officials, or any of the others who would be doing the work. Because this is what he found out as he walked the wall. This is what always happened. What starts in an individual has to go out from the individual to the people of God. No vision that God ever accomplishes does he accomplish alone. 
he takes it from an individual and he expands it out to his church. And the thing with Nehemiah, the position that he was in, which was so difficult, is that he was walking the wall and he finds out what good leaders always find out. I can't do this alone. I can't do this alone. As he walked in and out of the gates, he realized that I, I'm not good enough, I'm not strong enough, I don't know enough, uh, I, I've never built a wall before, I've never led people of this, this magnitude before, I've, I, I don't really know where to start or how to clean this out. And he hadn't told a soul about what God had put on his heart. He hadn't said a thing publicly quite yet. And this is the thing for us as we look at this. The people that would be doing the work, that the reason it always expands is because things that are built on individuals don't, don't last very long. Churches that are built on pastor personalities don't last very long. I mean, they'll have their season, but they won't last very long. Um, churches that are built, for example, uh, on a deacon, uh, on a particular family, on a particular segment of a church, those things don't last very long because they don't take into account the fact of what we see to be true here is that it can't be built around an individual. It's God through his power working through his people. And if Nehemiah learned one thing, he didn't just learn how dire the situation was when he walked the wall. He also was humbled to the fact that he knew he needed others to help him do the task. He hadn't said a thing out loud, but God was doing a work in him. He was solidifying the vision. He was helping him to see what his true need was. I mean, you could have believed the hype. I mean, he could have believed the hype. I mean, who else would have risen from a, uh, a guy in Jewish captivity to the cupbearer to the king and now has letters from the king and has all this stuff and he's commanding orders of Persian citizens and Persian armies? This is the guy now that realizes, I don't have what it takes. So what does he do? When you begin to realize that, what do you do? How do you then begin to lead people? What is your next step? If God's burdening you for something and you're walking the wall, what's the next step for you to take what God has burdened you for, to realize your need, to realize the situation, and then to take it full force and expand the vision? Well, I think Nehemiah gives us four quick hit steps in the next two verses to help us understand the way it usually flows. The first one is this. Verse 17, then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. What is the first recorded sentence from Nehemiah to the people that he's leading? Do you see the trouble that we're in? This is the way it always begins. The, the, the leader sometimes uh, is the first one to say what everybody knows to be true but nobody else is willing to say. I mean... The question, actually, do you see the trouble we're in, was kind of a, a backhanded comment to say, yeah, of course you see it. You walk in and out of these gates, in and out of Jerusalem all the time, and the problem is that you don't see what you see. You, you walk through complacent, and you think, well, this is okay. This is just the way it's supposed to be. We're just going through the motions. We're raising our family. We're doing our job. We're going to our church services, and we'll just keep on doing this until we kind of get to spiritual retirement age, and then once we get to the spiritual retirement home, which is heaven, then everything will be good. But right now, we're just going through the motions, and what Nehemiah does is he simply says out loud what is actually true, and it's the first step to leadership is confrontation. 
The first step that he takes is actually confronting them, not personally, but confronting them with the truth and confronting them with the promise of God of what God had called them to be, to call into account their own complacency through confrontation. That's why when you come to church, we come to church for a lot of different reasons. We come to uh, spiritual things for a lot of different reasons. Most of the time we do it because we see a void that we need. But oftentimes the thing that we don't understand we need is confrontation. The gospel is the most confrontational message of any religion out there. Uh, Every other religion will tell you that, hey, just work a little harder, try a little bit more, face this way, pray that direction, do this, give this sacrifice over there, visit this place at this time. They'll give you a lot of different things to jump through, but they're all empowering you to make the changes you need to make. But the gospel is the only one that actually confronts you with the truth. It says that there's nothing that you can actually do to get better, to gain access to God, that God had to do everything. You're actually so bad that God had to come down himself and fix you. It's confrontational. That's why church for us cannot be self-help. It can't be just principles and lessons. It can't just be encouragement all the time. Sometimes the thing that we need the most is confrontation of the truth because real change and real vision for our own lives or publicly cannot occur without confrontation of the true situation, the nature of what is broken that we've become complacent to, and then the nature of the promise, the vision of what could be and what should be that God wants and has ordained to take place. And he's placed us in the middle, in the gap. And so as he confronts the people, what's the next thing he does? Well, the next thing he does is simply this. He confronts them first, then he says, come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we'll no longer be a disgrace. What was happening here was he was calling them to a physical act. What he was really pointing to was actually a spiritual reality. It was a spiritual point, right? The disgrace. But very rarely does God move spiritually apart from moving physically. If you think about the way that he works mostly in our lives, it's through disciplines that we implement in our life. Uh, We try to divide them out and say, well, I have a spiritual moment, a kind of euphoric moment over here. Uh, But those are fleeting. Most of the things of substance that have spiritual substance in your life happen over time through discipline. They happen through work. They happen through effort. It's when we take things in our head and now he begins to hit the heart. And when he hits the heart, what is he going to? He goes from a confrontation with the truth and then he moves to the challenge of something that they're going to have to do together physically. He says, I, I want you to, to realize it's time for us not just to walk th- go through the motions anymore and walk through life. Now it's time for us to do this together. And I like the fact that he said us, don't you? Because this is the nature of biblical servant leadership. He didn't say, hey, uh, you guys, what, you need to build a wall. I've got everything together. I was the one that went to the king. I'm the one that got the resources. I'm just a, res- I'm just a resource funnel to you to go do the work. God didn't call people just to be resource funnels. I don't care how gifted and how financially gifted you are. You're not just a resource funnel. What he called us to do as leaders is to say, hey, uh, there's a problem. Don't you see the problem? Let us together fix it. He didn't say, hey, I'm up in my ivory tower. Go fix it. I'm going to send you the resources. You get after it. That's not the way church works. It's not the way it's supposed to work. It's not somebody up here getting paid to do the job, and it's not somebody up here getting paid to do the job to tell you to do the job. It's all of us together doing the job together. So what does he say? He confronts them first, and then he moves to challenge. He challenges them. There's no growth without confrontation. 
And there's no growth without challenge. Why here do we try to challenge you on Sundays and not just give you self-help messages? Because you can't grow without challenge. Why do we ask and try to encourage and try to push you toward getting a group? Because it's another level of challenge. Every time you get closer in a relationship with people and you get this room smaller, because this kind of thing brings anonymity, you can kind of come in and go out, and you're okay, and you kind of get your feel and go out. But church, over time, that's okay for a period of time, but there's steps you have to take in challenge, because with each subsequent step of challenge, you grow spiritually. And so we always encourage you to get involved in a group, because you're going to get in a smaller group. People are going to start to know you. They're going to start to pray for you. They're going to start to encourage you, but they're also going to start challenging you. And then even within groups, we also actually push you to another level of challenge, which is what we call a 2-3. It's just groups of two or three people that get together on a regular basis to ask character questions of one another, to read Scripture, study Scripture together. And the whole thing about that is we want to spur one another on. We want to challenge one another on to love and good deeds in Christ. You see, without those subsequent steps... We could grow a big church, fill a big room, have a great show, pat everybody on the back, but there won't be any real healthy growth because healthy growth takes confrontation first with the truth and then challenge relationally. And so what does he do? He gives the vision that way. Here's the truth. Here's, what, here, here's the problem. Here, here's the potential. But here's also the challenge with it. Let us rebuild this wall. But there's also two other things hidden in here in verse 18. So I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. The other two parts are this. The first one is this, is conviction. Conviction. I told them about how I went before the king. Can you imagine hearing that story? You know, he's saying, hey, they would have been asking, how does this guy that's a Jew have all this stuff? How how is he commanding these Persian soldiers around here? How are they protecting him? What has happened in this? And he tells them the story about how he heard about them. I heard about you. I didn't know you, but God broke my heart for you. And I've come here to tell you, I I risk my life for you. And they said, yeah, we understand that. You You went up to the Persian king, and you asked him for the supplies, and you asked him for permission to come and help us, when all we've known is that we've been underneath the thumb of an oppressive ruler. You went before the very king that has his thumb on us, and you made the request on our behalf. He said, yeah, I did that. What does that say? That says a leader that has conviction, a leader that was willing to personally sacrifice for the vision. Not just an idea, not a fleeting thought, not a passing prayer, but he put his very life on the line for people that he didn't even know that were far, far away. You see, the way that God works in our own life is that way, is it not? Isn't that what Jesus did? Jesus put his own life. He put his own life on the line. He was a God that said, you can't do it on your own. Let us rebuild a broken life. And so I'm going to come down. I'm going to lower myself. I'm going to walk the wall and examine the problem personally. I'm going to go to the cross personally. I'm going to put my life on the line, and I'm going to let my life be taken so that the will of God for your life will grow. The same thing that got us salvation from Christ is the same thing that saves other people through us confrontation, challenge, conviction. And the last part of that is confirmation. How is it confirmed? Well, uh, he told what the king had said to me. The king, king said, hey, you got all this stuff. Well, how, how did they know that God's hand was in it? Because nothing that took place, that they could see taking place, had ever taken place before. 
And it wasn't just this spiritual pie-in-the-sky idea. It was actually substance. He said, hey, here, everything's ready. There's nothing else to hold us back. Let us start building the wall. It's time to build. It's time to get after it. So what were the four things real quick? Real quick, confrontation, challenge, conviction, and then confirmation. God confirms his calling. As that, all those things takes place, then you get to the leader, and sometimes the leader not only has to examine things, he kind of moves from the head, he gets to the heart, but then he moves in and he says, hey, it's time to get our hands dirty. And that's exactly what he says in the next verse. Watch what he says. They replied, let us start rebuilding, and so they began this good work. They started building. It was time for them to actually put their hands to the beams, the bolts, and the bars on the doors to move the rubble, to move the rocks, and actually start the work. But they weren't without op- opposition. As a matter of fact, the opposition started really quickly. When, the Sam- when Samballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? They're trying to sow seeds of discord in it. In verse 20, he says this. I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historical right to it. What does he keep going back to? He keeps going back to the thing that started in the beginning. He goes back to the promise of God. What God has promised, what God has covenanted with his people, what God is working out and committed to, he will work through his people to accomplish. He does it every time. That's why when we pray here at Journey, we can have confidence when we pray according to God's will in Scripture, His revealed will through Christ, we can pray confidently that men and women will come to know Him and we will see it happen. When we we pray confidently that God will use us to minister to the brokenness in our world, we can say, hey, we know that's going to happen. Why? Because God has promised that it's going to happen. So we don't tie it to our own power. We don't tie it to our own intellect. We don't tie it to uh, a trend. We tie it to the enduring Word of God and what God has revealed. And every time that that takes place, it doesn't matter what the naysayers say. It doesn't matter what people want to undercut or what haters say about it, well, the only thing that's going to matter at the end of the day is going to matter what God has promised and the submission of his people to his promise. And that's where we get. That's where God begins to move in power. He, he initiates and enacts our hands to actually do things, the things that are broken we can put our hands to fix. And that's exactly where he lands in Nehemiah chapter 3. Nehemiah chapter 3. Elisha, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. And then he goes on to say this. Then men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur, son of Emery, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassanah. They laid its beams, put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Now, there's about 918 words in chapter 3. And you're like, oh my goodness, it's going to take him forever to do that, right? We're not going to do that. Uh, We're going to pick out three, all right? And the three that we're going to pick out right here is next to them. And those those names are kind of archaic, so I thought it would probably be helpful if we just exchanged some names for a second. So I'm going to need some help with this, if it's okay. It's all right? If we have some help. Uh, Let's do this. Uh, Tyson, come here for a second. Wake up and come here. All right. Stand right here. Stand right here. This is Tyson. Tyson, where are you from? Uh, Marion. 
You have to think about that? Yeah. I forget where you're from. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's from Marion. College. What year are you in college? Senior. Senior. So, man, you're about done. I didn't realize that. Yeah. 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 Okay. You got any, never mind. We'll talk about student loan debt in a minute. Okay. That's a conversation with your parents. Tyson's one of our interns. Uh, he uh, is really faithful, has been faithful here since he's been here. God's been using him in a big way. ASU student, okay? Uh, but he helps with our student. He leads worship, uh, serves in a lot of capacities around here. And God's using him in a huge, huge way, all right? Dong Eun, do you come here for a second? Dong Eun Kim, all right? I want you to come stand right here, sit right here. You teach at ASU, right? All right. What do you teach? Computer science. Computer science at ASU. All right. I know nothing about that. All right. Uh, but I'm glad you do. That's really good. Now I know who to call. Okay. Uh, Dongum, where are you from, Dongum? Uh, originally from South Korea. South Korea. Yes. Okay. And how long have you been in Jonesboro? Uh, this is my second year. Second year. Okay. They joined the church this past year. All right. Uh, and I love sitting over here because I get to sit behind them and. Your wife has a beautiful smile, by the way. She <laughs> smiles at our time. It's very uh, exciting. Like, so ASU professor, ASU student, okay? We tracking? Tracking what's going on over here? Brian, come here for a second. All right. All right, you can stand right here. Brian Emerson. All right. Brian, uh, what do you do, Brian? Um, I do a director of business development for a little biotech company. Okay. And here you serve on guest services, yes, sir. if I'm correct, yes, right? Sir. Guest services. So he's one of the people that are greeting you, helping you when you come in, find a seat, different things like that, right? Okay. Cool. We're tracking. We're tracking. Uh, Lindsay, come here for a second. All right. Everybody's like, don't point at me. <laughs> don't point at me. Lindsay, where are you from? Uh, Cabot, Arkansas. All right. Come here, Cabot, Arkansas. Stand right there. All right. What year are you at ASU? I'm a junior. Junior. All right. Where do you serve around here? Um, I help with the preschool ministry. Preschool. So she's down here helping with the little ones. All right. Very faithful of doing that. What year did you say? I'm a junior. Junior. Okay. All right. Cool. Good deal. Good. Stay right there. Don't move. All right. Don't move. All right. Battles. Come here, both of you. Come here because you got those cool T-shirts on. Come here. <laughs> you shouldn't wear those conspicuous T-shirts like that. All right. I'm standing right here for a second. All right. Battles, maybe you've seen them before. They came, they were here when we talked about groups and stuff like that. But you can see where they serve, right? Uh, you can say hi to them later, all right? You don't have to do it right now. But they serve in guest services team, uh, very faithful. I mean, the one thing I can say about them, leading their family to be faithful around here, okay? And uh, what do you do? What do you do for a living? Uh, clinical analyst, St. Bernard's. Uh, St. Bernard's clinical analyst. St. Bernard's Lab. St. Bernard's Lab. Okay, so we got the whole medical field going on right here. So, all right, we got that going on. Um, John, will you come here for a second? John, G John Dealey, will you come here for a second? I promise we're almost done. All right. I don't have my glasses on, so I can't see any farther than that. Uh, who's back there? So you're the last person I can see. John, what do you do? You consultant. I'm a, I'm a consultant. You consultant. You consult me sometimes. I advise people. All right, I'll call you. All right. All right. John works to get services, serves in a lot of different capacities around here. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. If you look up here, this is, I mean, we could pull everybody up here, okay? I just picked a few people out. But when you look at this, it's the same thing that you see here in this, those three words next to them. There's a lot of names. We skip over chapter threes in the Bible. But there was a pivotal moment. Scholars will tell you this in chapter three. If you think about the Old Testament stories you know, the names that you pop up, you'll pop up Moses, Abraham, right? David, Solomon, Esther. You know, you, you'll, you'll pop up these names really quick. And 
scholars talk about the transition that happens in Nehemiah because this is the first time that's really recorded where the leader begins to name everybody else that did all the work. That's a powerful thought for a second. So out of the 918 words or so that are in chapter 3, the names that are listed in there are all tied together by words like next to them, next to him. There's even one in there that I love. It says, uh, it gives a man name and it says he and his daughters, which I like because I got four daughters, right? Their household. Now, when you look up here, you see college students, you see different individuals, you see different professions, you see different backgrounds. And this is what the Lord is doing. But it's a little bit different than Nehemiah. How is it different? We'll flip over to 1 Peter real quick. Y'all stay there for just a second. I promise we're almost done. 1 Peter chapter 2, this is what it says. As you come to him, that's Jesus, the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's not about the power of what God wants to do through us. It's what God is actually building us into. See, the transition through Christ was, it's not just about God residing in a place like Jerusalem. It's God residing in a people like you and like these. And so next to them, next to them, next to them, next to them, next to them. And then if we look out here, next to all of us, when we come and we sacrifice physically for the wall in front of us, when we put our hands together and we say, hey, I... I'm learning names, right? I'm learning professions. I didn't even really know what his profession was. I've known his name for a long time, but I'm learning that today. And so we're in the process of learning one another, but we're all responsible for the section in front of us, and that's where the power is. Can you see the power in that? When God builds a group of people together, and then the Spirit of God comes down and invades somebody, it's not localized to a room like this. It's not localized to a building like this. It is God working in His people, through His people, to bring His Spirit to bear on the brokenness of our earth. And that's what He wants to do right here. But the interesting thing is it didn't happen without physical sacrifice. They had to put their hands to work. There was nobody listed in there except that, that didn't put their hands to work. There's actually a spot in there that says the nobles were not willing to do the work. There was a group of people that actually in that whole list of names that says, I don't want to be next to them. I don't want to do the work. I'm fine with it being built, and I'm going to enjoy the benefit of it, but not me. But that's not what God's building. God is building something here where the Holy Spirit of God can rest, and he wants to invite you in. If you don't have a place yet, you can come and get next to us. Put your shoulder right here next to us, and you can build a wall in front of you. And we're going to build something together. God's going to build something, us into something together where the Spirit of God can rest. Would you pray with me? You guys can have a seat. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that, God, you did the work. Uh, you stepped into our brokenness. You don't call us to build a physical structure for you, to honor you, God. You instead, you came and rebuilt our brokenness through your Son. And so today we turn that back to you, God, and we hold on to the power of your name, Lord. We don't live for any name. There are 918 
words in there, a bunch of names, God. There's a bunch of names in this room. There were a bunch of names at nine. There's other people we don't need. But the, the reality for all of us is, is we don't live for any of those names. When we realize the magnitude of your name, God, we're willing to submit our names to your name, to live for your name. Lord, that means our jobs are submitted to you. Our identity is submitted to you. Our relationships are submitted to you, God. Uh, our finances are submitted to you. We say to you, God, take everything that we have and put it to work on what you're building. And we lift high the name of Jesus Christ through that. Not just through a song, God, but through our very lives. We want to lay our lives down for the world. We want to enter into the brokenness. And we ask, God, that the empowerment comes from the confrontation of the truth. We thank you for challenging us, God. We thank you for the conviction that it took for you to come and lay your life down. And we thank you, God, for the confirmation now through the Holy Spirit that rests inside of us. You're the true Nehemiah. God, you're the one that came to save. You rebuilt our lives. Work in us now, God, in Jesus' name.